Hello everyone, welcome to Everything Building Envelope. I'm your host, Paul Beers. Everything Building Envelope podcast features topics of interest related to the exterior building envelope, including waterproofing, glazing, cladding, and roofing. We feature relevant topics and guests and want to engage you, the listener, with thought-provoking content. Please visit our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com, where you'll find access to each episode along with show notes and a special video section with bonus content. Today's topic is hurricane glazing. The issue date for this episode is June 1, which coincidentally is also the official start of hurricane season in the United States. I know this year the forecast is for an about an average season and you know having followed this for all these years that really doesn't mean anything to me. We've had seasons that the year Hurricane Andrew came 1992 was supposed to be a diminished season and of course it only takes one and then other seasons which were supposed to be really bad not much happened so it's a guessing game who knows one could come next week, one could come not at all. And, you know, I guess if you live in a hurricane-prone area, the real um, thing to consider is that it's not if, it's when the storm's going to come. I lived in South Florida since 1968, and honestly, it was until 1992 before we really had anything semi-serious. It was Hurricane Andrew, and that was not that bad where I was and it was actually 2004 with hurricanes Francis and Jean before we really got hit and then guess what the next year 2005 we got hit again so there's no predicting natural disasters when they're going to occur in this episode we're going to talk about the history of hurricane glazing how it came about how it developed into a cottage industry in Florida and beyond. We're also going to talk about how there are many uses for hurricane glazing beyond hurricanes. I bet you didn't know that, but these systems are really good. You know, they're good for security, they're good for natural disasters, and they can be used for other applications such as bomb blast protection, uh, tornadoes, seismic events, earthquakes, security, civil unrest. They're good for energy, and the, the glass that's typically used, laminated glass, has always, even before the hurricane market came into existence, was used for acoustics. So let's talk about where it all began. The hurricanes, as we all know, have been around for forever, as far as we're concerned. First, let's talk about where it all began. Hurricanes have been around for a very very long time however the characteristics of where they strike have changed a lot as times gone by population density in coastal areas has increased significantly so storms that came through say a hundred years ago maybe the worst hurricane ever hardly hit any population particularly when you think of areas like coastal Atlantic and Gulf areas so now, when they come through, there's many, many people in harm's way. The first real evidence of um, storm damage was in, of, of damage to urban areas 
was actually in 1982, I believe, Hurricane Alicia in downtown Houston caused a tremendous amount of glass breakage in the downtown area. And researchers went in, investigators went in after the fact and took a look at what happened and tried to figure out why this occurred. What they found was that you know, hurricanes have always been known for high wind, but what they didn't really account for was the fact that this wind also picks up debris and flings it around. So in downtown Houston, many of the buildings had roof gravel on the roofs, and the gravel basically was there to protect the roof and to weigh it down, whatever. What was not really contemplated was the fact that in a severe windstorm, such as a hurricane, this gravel could be lifted and hurled at the building next door. And that's exactly what happened. They would look at a building, say it was a 60-story building, and up on the 50th to 60th floor, very little damage. But from 40, 50 and below, all kinds of glass breakage. And that really didn't jive with conventional wisdom that the higher you went in the air, the worse it, it got. So looking into it further, they saw the building next door was a 50-story building and it had roof gravel or, or it used to have roof gravel and it made a lot of sense. The things were blowing off of other adjacent buildings and causing the damage to their neighbors. So that was well documented. Nothing was really done in the codes and standards arena. There were some research papers that were developed. I think there was even some code changes proposed and basically wasn't adopted. I think it was the, well, that happened to them. It's not going to happen to me attitude prevailed at the time. The next big event, which really was a game changer for the hurricane um, protection business and the glazing industry was Hurricane Andrew in South Florida in 1992. Hurricane Andrew at the time was called a Category 5 hurricane. It may have been revised. It, it's obviously debatable to a strong Category 4. But the eye of Hurricane Andrew came into Miami-Dade County, the southern part of Miami-Dade County, in 1992 and caused tremendous damage. There were housing developments that were completely flattened. There were commercial buildings that had a lot of glass loss. Roofs were blown off. I think at the time, I'm trying to remember, I believe that the damage figure was 20 some odd billion dollars. And it was just a magnitude way greater than anything that had ever been seen before in the US. It was staggering losses. It turned the insurance market upside down. It caused all the building codes to really be looked at. Um, in Miami-Dade County, they always thought that, well, they were proud of their code. It was, it was the hurricane code, and they, designed, they worked hard on it. They designed it for hurricane winds, the strongest hurricane winds, and it was the most advanced code in the nation, probably in the world, for windstorms by far. And 
the shock and dismay when this hurricane came through and damaged everything was really incomprehensible. So they put together a commission, the Metro-Dade Building Code Evaluation Task Force, and that the job, and it was comprised of very high-level building officials, uh, wind experts, university researchers. It was a um, who's who of, of the hurricane business. One of the members I remember was Herb Saffer, who invented the Saffer-Simpson hurricane scale, for example. So they, took a, they were tasked with examining the damage, looking at the code, and figuring out what went wrong and how to fix it. They held a lot of hearings over um, probably a year, year and a half's time. They looked at all the damage mechanisms, which was basically roofs blew off, garage doors caved in, windows were lo- windows and doors were lost. And when when you lose windows, when you lose the build the integrity of the building envelope, windows, doors, uh, things like that, that can lead that causes something called internal pressurization. So. If you have your windows and doors intact, the hurricane basically stays outside. When you start losing windows and doors, then the storm basically comes inside. So the pressure, when the, when the, when the envelope is intact on the roof, there's an, a, a very, very strong uplift pressure trying to pull it off. And that's what they designed for. And, and, it was, and the design was correct for that. When you add in loss of the building envelope, such as broken windows, garage door failures, things like that, and the storm comes inside, not only do you have the uplift on the roof trying to pull it off, but you've got the wind inside trying to push it off. So you've doubled the pressure. And the buildings were not designed for that kind of pressure. And the result was really tragic that many, many homes would have, and, and, and there was people that, that countless people after the storm said, yes, I was in there, the windows blew, and as fast as that happened, the roof came off. And obviously it was terrifying, and it was not anticipated, and it was not, not something that, that anybody wanted to, an outcome that anybody wanted to happen. If you live in a hurricane-prone area, Obviously, you should design for it, and you don't want roofs coming off. So, long story, well, I was going to say long story short, but it's a long story. So, the, the end result was, after further research and investigation, it was really determined that, that one of the keys to having a viable protection of buildings and to strengthening the code was to eliminate the problem of windows coming off. So the obvious solution at the time was let's board everything up. Let's, let's cover the windows so they can't get broken. Also storm shutters. And by the way, the storm shutters from back in that era, many of them could not stop. They were wind resistant, but also could not stop windborne debris. They were made out of materials such as PVC and very lightweight metals. And if you had a significant 
debris item blowing in the wind, it would go right through them and the window behind, and then all the trouble began. So, at, after the, the codes had determined, the task force had determined that they needed to strengthen the code and they wanted to board everything up, there was also an effort, and I was involved in this, to promote, rather than saying a per prescriptive standard, let's board everything up, let's have a performance requirement, which, which is let's develop a test that you can put building products in front of, and if they pass the test, then it's worthy, and if it doesn't, it's not. And this would allow for a lot of other options that maybe weren't even contemplated in 1993, let's say, when this, when this debate was going on. And the, the Building Code Evaluation Task Force liked that idea. There was, um, and, and what we proposed back then was we proposed a, a test where we shot, fired two-by-fours out of an air cannon at, you know, calibrated to, to a certain speed, a certain weight, certain speed, and we fired them at these test specimens, and they were supposed to bounce off, basically, not penetrate them. And, you know, the obvious thing that you would think of is a sh hurricane shutter, but also we were in the process of developing hurricane glazing systems that would also bounce the missile. Now, bouncing the missile is wonderful, but if you think about it in a hurricane, after the missile product gets hit with debris, what happens? Well, the wind doesn't just stop. Then the, the product has to survive the winds that follow, and they can be very, very severe, obviously, you know, over 100 miles an hour, and they're cyclic, which means they cause vibration, and they can go on for hours or even days afterwards. So the second part of what we proposed was a cyclic wind loading test. And we proposed 18,000 wind cycles, which there was some scientific research that indicated that in a storm, the cyclic nature of the winds could cause a tremendous amount of cycles. And I'm trying to remember, I think it was 40, 50,000 or more cycles in a, in a windstorm, such as a hurricane. So we reduced that to 18,000, and there was research behind it. In fact, the, um, the, the, the writer from Australia of the research paper was the one who designed the 18,000 cycles for us. And we proposed that along, so first you impact the, the test specimen, then you do the wind cycles, and if it survives all of that, then it's worthy. And the idea was that not only would it be hurricane shutters, but it would be impact glazing as well. There was great debate over a couple of years, a lot of opposition to it in the beginning, which was really surprising to me. Um, every, basically, everybody was opposed to it initially. I guess, you know, change is not good. The, the glazing industry, the hurricane shutter industry, the home builders many special interests trying to defeat the code. And, and the big argument was that we were going to make buildings unaffordable because this was going to be so expensive. Well, the general public um, really wanted to be protected. The, the Miami Herald was coming out with articles all the time, I say all the time, on a regular basis that were basically advocating doing the right thing. And ultimately... 
the Dade County Commission passed this. So now we had the new codes in place and the next big challenge was developing systems that would comply. And it wasn't easy. I mean, there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimentation. We found out quickly that the impact bouncing the missile off of the glass or the shutter was the easy part and actually keeping it in place during the cyclic loading was really the hard part. So these systems are, are basically fairly complex. It's, it, when I say systems, you know, hurricane impact glass alone is not going to really do anything for you. Um, either is the strongest frame, hurricane framing that you can find. What you need is everything to work together. So the systems that were developed initially and basically are still in use was you would have a wind-resistant frame, typically aluminum, although there certainly are other materials that, that could work. You had impact glass that could bounce the missile. And then the real key to it all was keeping the glass in the frame. And we did this with structural silicone glazing. So these three parts together were what it took to be able to pass the test. Again, very complex. Um, it sounds, maybe it sounds simple, but very complex because there were a lot of variables. For instance, the strongest glass wasn't necessarily the best glass for these systems. If it was really stiff and rigid, the missile would go sailing right through it, whereas if it, maybe it was, had a little bit of flexibility to it when it, when it hit, then the missile would, would bounce off of it. So, as time went on, more systems got developed, and then the codes basically started to consider it. It was, it was after it got adopted in Miami-Dade County, it went, we took it to the Southern Building Code Congress, which was the, the, the code in, at that time in Florida and most of the hurricane-prone areas in the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts, and it was rejected. And this happened two or three years in a row. They basically said that it wasn't a consensus standard and that was what they needed or what they wanted, and otherwise they weren't going to approve it. And the same folks who were fighting this in Dade County were, were doing their thing at the Southern Building Code Congress as well. We took it to ASTM. We developed a couple of standards, ASTM 1887 or 6, 1886 and 1996. One was a specification for hurricane testing and the other was the test method itself. And over a matter of a few years, um, and you know, ASTM is consensus standards organization, so everyone has to agree and they have a process to actually get that, have that happen. It's really a great system. And it wasn't easy, but eventually these two standards were published. When that happened, the, um, the International Building Code had come into effect or, or been, um, been put forth at that point. And with the ASTM standards, it was put into the International Building Code. Uh, the International Building Code was also the basis for a new effort in Florida, the Florida Building Code, and the same codes basically came into, or, or, the, or the, the ASTM standards that were in the International Building Code and the requirement for impact protection became part of the Florida Building Code.
So here we are in 2016, and after this tumultuous beginning, the codes, the hurricane glazing codes are now well accepted. They didn't ruin construction. In fact, if you go to South Florida these days, particularly Miami, it's shocking how many projects are under construction. And these are big buildings. My company's working on one right now that's 80 stories in Miami. So um, the codes, yes, it added expense. Um, and, and, but no, it didn't cause construction to stop or put the, put the industry out of business, make buildings or housing unaffordable. They're more expensive in South Florida because of this, yes. But as I said before, if you live in an area where there's hurricanes, then of course you want the hurricanes, you, you, you want to be able to, to resist it. And I can tell you, having lived through three hurricanes in 04 and 05, um, in both cases I lived in a um, townhouse that had impact-resistant hurricane shutter storm panels, you... That's scary enough having the shutters up, but it's really, you know, I, I can't imagine not having had them and the fear that I would have felt had I been in an unprotected building. Of course, I know probably more than the average person does, but it just makes sense. So where, where are we today with these systems? Well, it's a mainstream item. You'll find all of the companies in hurricane-prone areas offer these systems. In fact, not only do they offer them, they aggressively market them. And this is from, you know, mom-and-pop window companies right on up to the biggest um, curtain wall and, and glazing system manufacturers. Um, the way things work these days is that you have to have a tested and approved system. Um, Miami-Dade County has a product approval system, so does the Florida Building Code, and these codes are basically require, have, have protocols and they require testing and um, design and testing of the systems, and then they require what we call a, a notice of acceptance document that, that's ultimately reviewed and produced by the Building Code authorities. So let's look at where we are with these systems today. What's required to get approval in the hurricane areas? What are the codes? Who approves them? You know, here we are in 2016, and these systems are now mainstream in the glazing industry. They're very well accepted, actually not just in the glazing industry, by the building industry, the general public, the insurance industry, there's a lot of folks that are um, very big fans and very engaged with this. And the process now, as it's kind of been since the beginning, is you have to take a system, design it, bring it into a laboratory, and test it to all the various performance requirements for impact testing, cyclic loading. You also have to test it for structural loading. You have to test it for water infiltration, for air infiltration. There's, there's many tests that need to be done. When that's all done, then a set of engineered drawings and documents need to be put together and submitted to a product approval agency. The two primary product approval agencies for these systems are, the, the, the one that's been doing it all along is Miami-Dade County, product, product control, and also the Florida Building Code has a product approval system. 
So these are submitted and reviewed by these system by these um, organizations or these approval agencies, and ultimately they're issued a notice of acceptance or an NOA document. And that's really where the rubber meets the road for evaluating these, using these systems on projects, what their loads are, and being able to basically prove performance. It's one thing to say this is hurricane proof or hurricane resistant. You know, there were a lot of, of claims in that regard um, as these systems were being developed with window film and, and, and other things that really didn't work. And you know what, what sorted that all out was the product approval system and having the um, ability to see you know, what has been through the testing and the approval process. So um, these systems have really performed well. So, so they, were, you know, they, they were developed in the 90s or began to be developed in the 90s. And what was a little scary was until 2004, there, there wasn't really a significant windstorm event in any of the areas where these systems were being used to see if they, they really worked. Well, in 2004, that ended in a big way. There, was, there were two, there was actually more than two. There were, there were multiple storms in Florida. There was Charlie, Francis, Gene, but the big test that, that I found was actually Hurricane Ivan in the Cayman Islands. We'd been involved down there working on several bank buildings. Um, Cayman National Bank was one. Swiss Bank, which is now UBS, was another. Um, and then a few other buildings. And we had install, helped them you know, develop and install the hurricane impact glazing systems. These were commercial buildings, so they were curtain wall framing with laminated glass and silicone. And anyway, in 2004, Grand Cayman gets hit with Hurricane Ivan, a category four slash five storm that was a direct hit. It caused massive damage. It, the, most of the entire island was covered with storm surge. The winds were tremendous. Uh, the damage was, was extensive. Um, surprisingly, there was very little loss, or if any, loss of life. But um, this was kind of the, um, oh no, here we're going to find out how these things really work moment. So I went down there about three weeks after the storm um, to help with the recovery. And lo and behold, found out that there was a lot of damage um, throughout the island. In fact, I remember driving down the street um, after being picked up at the airport and having to have special permission, by the way, to fly in there and driving down the street and basically seeing that um, we're, we're riding along and it's clink, 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 clink. We're riding over power lines that are down in the road. There's no power on the island, no water. Everywhere you looked, there was severely damaged buildings. But guess what? Cayman Bank, Cayman National Bank, Swiss Bank, the buildings that we worked on, they did fine. They were, you know, they had some, some superficial damage, but they were basically in good shape. And it was really um, heartening to see how well these systems worked. And that's been demonstrated time and time again. The last big storm in Florida that caused so much damage, that caused a lot of damage, was Hurricane Wilma. And 
there was a lot of damage to windows and doors, but all the damage to windows and doors were buildings that were built before the code changes. So these were 80s, 70s, you know, and, and earlier. And we investigated, my company investigated hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of buildings that had storm damage and the windows and doors, and it was extensive, and it was millions upon millions upon millions of dollars of damage. But we didn't look at any new buildings. We didn't look at any buildings that had hurricane impact glass. And you know why? Because they all performed well. They, they, they did well, and they, you know, there was, they didn't... The worst thing that happens with those systems is they get hit with debris, and the glass cracks or breaks, but it stays in the frame, the building's protected. So it can be replaced over time, not under duress. And, and it's a really important point to consider with these kind of systems. So what are the materials that are being used to make up these systems these days? Um, you know, again, we're into this 25, more than 25 years now since Hurricane Andrew. And the systems have evolved. In the beginning, we were kind of trying to adapt existing systems into and make them work. And now, obviously, you've got a lot of smart people in the glazing industry, and these systems have been custom designed to, um, to meet the need. And there's been materials that have been developed, um, particularly in the glass side of things, that, that are made just for, that were made, I shouldn't say just for, but that were made with the hurricane market in mind. So laminated glass, we've seen a lot of iterations of it over the years, some of it good, some of it not so good. They used to have a lot of these um, resin-based liquid pour inner layers. There may still be, still be some out there that are fine, but there were a lot of them that um, really didn't perform well. They, they, would, they, would, they would pass the test but then you get them out in the field and two years later, the glass was clouding up and the edges were, were um, you couldn't even see through them, delaminating. So durability was a big concern. And the, uh, the PVB inner layers, which are still used today and it's a, it's a good solid product, the PVB inner layers, you know, from a performance standpoint, had struggled with the large missile test. You know, some systems you could get it to pass, but not all. Um, the small missile test, which I didn't talk about, um, so, so there's a small missile test above 30 feet of building elevation where rather than shooting a 2x4 at the glass, you shoot um, steel balls or, or, or ball bearings to simulate roof gravel. And PVB is used a lot for that market. However, new products have come along. The one that comes to mind um, is an ionoplast inner layer, which is a different material than PVB, polyvinyl butrate. And trade name, one of the trade names for that is Sentry Glass Plus. That's a, that's a very commonly used um, system these days. It's, it's, it's proven very well for performance, also for durability. PVB can be susceptible to moisture around the edges, and Sentry Glass Plus is not. So even in glass handrails with exposed edges, things like that, it works well. Um, you know, so also what's going on now is the energy codes have been uh, increased quite a bit in this um, decade, I guess I would say. And 
the requirements now are even in Florida, you know, you have to have a uh, high performance coating, like a low E coating, and you have to use insulated glass. So people lis listening in the rest of the country are thinking, hello, we've been doing this for, for so long. But in Florida, the market was always monolithic glass. So for hurricanes, you would have a, a probably a tinted, you know, gray or bronze tinted glass with a laminated glass inner layer, and that was it. Now we're seeing systems, and it's just coming into play now with the recent code changes, where we have insulated laminated glass units. These are very heavy, very stout units. You, you would have, um, just as an example, you would have a regular light of glass, say heat-strengthened glass, then you would have a half-inch airspace, and then you would have a laminated unit that could be just for example 9/16 inch thick two pieces of quarter inch glass with the uh, interlayer and it ends up being trying to do my math here like an inch and a half or so thick and um or maybe a little bit less than that and you know so this doesn't fit in the average glazing frame so so the new framing members have to be designed to accommodate this. You still need to keep it in the frame after it breaks, so there's got to be room for the silicone. And, um, and these systems exist, and, and not, not only they exist with, with the Florida manufacturers, the national manufacturers, anybody that sells into, there's even manufacturers from Canada that sell into the, into the, the hurricane glazing market. And in fact, the Canadian manufacturers are big in the Caribbean as well. And the Caribbean has, although I don't know that they have code requirements on all these islands, if you build a significant building in the Caribbean, hospital, resort hotel, government building, typically you'll see a Miami-Dade specification because they're in harm's way even more so than, than coastal areas of the U.S. So these systems are, are very um, mainstream now. They're out there, they're easy to find, and they're basically used, they're common, I guess they're common would be the thing I would say. So, you know, the, 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 the title of this podcast, we talked about hurricane glazing systems and, you know, how can you use them or can they be used beyond the hurricane market? And the answer is a resounding yes. So the system, if you think about it, is a really durable um, hard to crack into type of system. You've got a very strong frame. You've got state-of-the-art laminated glass that you can't shoot two-by-fours through. Okay. So hurricane glazing systems be used beyond the hurricane market. They're, they're, if you think about it, they're really strong framing systems, really strong glass. Um, it can survive impacts from flying two-by-fours. It can survive tremendous amounts of wind pressure and wind cycle. So surely there's other places that this will work. And, and they're really it. They're, the answer is, is a resounding yes. Yes, you can use them in other places. So some of the markets that these types of systems can be tested and adapted to are bomb blast, tornadoes, Security, breaking and entering, civil unrest, things like that. Um, seismic, earthquakes, and acoustic. If you think about it, 
these systems, as strong as they are, are a perfect fit for this. And in fact, these tests have been done. So if you have a hurricane resistant, you know, state-of-the-art hurricane resistant system, say in, um, in Texas, um, you may not even know it, but this system is, um, is good for not only for the hurricane, but it's also if there was a seismic event. In seismic events, the big danger is glass falling, breaking and falling out of the frame. And it's going to stay in the frame because, you know, short of a structural failure of the building, it's going to stay in the frame because the glass is attached with structural silicone. Bomb blast, a much higher load. It's an impulse load, um, like a millisecond as opposed to a hurricane, which goes on for, for quite a long time. But the... Um, the fact is that, you know, again, you've got a, a glass product that's going to resist the impulse. You've got a very strong framing system, and it's attached to the frame. Um, certainly, you would want to test it if you're going to use it for a bomb blast application, but the same type of design works for that as well. And then the, the, big, area, the big area of opportunity that I don't think it's being used much, but maybe it should be, is in tornado-prone areas. Um, a tornado is basically a severe windstorm. It's obviously a lot smaller in size, and it can be different um, intensities, although most hurricanes, excuse me, most tornadoes don't have winds higher or any higher than a hurricane. And you look at critical facilities in tornado-prone areas, such as public buildings, hospitals, shelters, schools, things like that, I don't think that they, in fact, I know most of them, if not all of them, well, I shouldn't say if not all of them, but, but a vast majority don't have any special considerations for, for these types of, of, of events, these, these tornadoes. You know, you go hide under a desk or you go into the hallway, things like that. And I'd suggest to you that it's appropriate to consider, like in a hospital that has critical patient care, where you can't evacuate the patients, it's appropriate to consider hardening the building so in the event that this does occur, that you do have a tornado, you're not going to have property and life at near the risk you would without these types of windows. From a security standpoint, we've already seen this where, they, where hurricane systems have been put into, say, for example, storefronts and the, the bad guys come along and try and throw bricks or garbage cans or whatever through the window to rob the store, and they bounce off. And they can sit there and throw that brick a hundred times at it, and it's not going to go through. They're going to get tired and go somewhere else before they, before they ever get in. So from the security standpoint, it's really good. Um, same thing would apply to civil unrest. You know, if there's um, rioting or looting, say, after a storm, Again, the buildings with the hurricane-resistant systems, they're not getting in without significant effort. And um, typically, there'll be other places to go and, and have a lot easier time with it. Before the um, hurricane market, laminate glass was used a lot for acoustics and sound attenuation. Um, it was mainly used actually in airports. And this is still a perk that you get when you put these systems in. People all the time, I have friends who put impact windows in their house, 
and they say, oh, wow, I never realized how much quieter it would be inside now that I've got this, this new glass. The upgrading or, or putting in new impact windows also leaves an opportunity for glazing to be upgraded to meet the state-of-the-art energy codes. You can put low-E coatings into it. You can make it into laminated glass units. So the opportunities for the, the hurricane-type systems go far beyond the hurricane market, and, and, and they are being used in instances for this today. You know, so, so the market's well accepted, the hurricane market's well accepted. There are other applications for it to grow in. It's really interesting to see, you know, how, how things have evolved. So that's the story of the hurricane glazing system, where it came from and where it is today. This concludes this episode of Everything Building Envelope podcast. I hope you found it interesting and thought-provoking. Please subscribe to the Everything Building Envelope podcast at iTunes and Android outlets such as Stitcher or by visiting everythingbuildingenvelope.com where you'll find the show notes, previous episodes, and bonus content, videos, and things of that sort. As an added bonus for visiting the everythingbuildingenvelope.com, We've added a free report you can download entitled Seven Common Pitfalls to Avoid with Hurricane Glazing Systems. These types of systems are expensive and critical for protecting people and property, and you want to avoid these problems that could result in an outcome that's less than what you were hoping for. So thank you for listening. Please tell your friends and colleagues about the Everything Building Envelope podcast. This is Paul Beer saying so long until next time.